So Lord, I ask that as we declare that truth that you are a good God, I ask through your spirit and through your word you would show us a a fresh revelation of that goodness, of your love for us, of your plan for us, of your purpose for us. Would you speak to us through your word this morning? Amen. Amen. Please take a seat. Everyone's masked up. It's a good thing because when Tanya, my wife, walked in this morning, had a mask on and I was hiding the fact that I have not shaved again and she's not real impressed. So, but now the truth's out. Can't do anything about that. That's okay. I want to tell you a secret. What comes to mind when somebody says that to you? I want to tell you a secret. Or they may ask, can you keep a secret? Your answer to that should probably be no. I want to tell you a secret. There's something about the idea that if, if someone shares a secret with us, we feel privileged that that secret has been shared with us. We feel like we can possibly be trusted. We feel like we are part of the, you know, maybe the inner circle that we know something other people don't know. Could be a whole range of things that go on in you when someone might want to share a secret with you. So we're going to explore today a secret that God has had from the beginning of time that started to become revealed and unpacked with the early church, particularly as Paul's writing to them in Ephesus. So we've been working through the book of Ephesians. Uh, we've been um, really understanding what the church is and what God's designed for the church is and his purpose for the church is and how the church is to look and operate and act. Um, and there's some real keys in the start of chapter three of that which we're going to explore today. I think for many of us, if we're told a secret... And this goes a little bit against what a secret is for. But for many of us, if we're told a secret, I reckon the greatest thrill we have is in sharing that secret with someone else. Think about that. There's something about, I just want to tell somebody the thing that I've been told. And we get a sense of that with Paul's letter today. So we're into chapter three. Can I encourage you, if you're... Here or at Tumby or at home, grab a Bible out, grab your phone out, grab something so you can see this. We're looking at Ephesians chapter 3 and I'm going to start in verse 1. This is Paul, he says, when I think of all of this, and so what he's referring to is everything he's unpacked in chapter 1 and 2. When I think of all of this, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the benefit of you Gentiles... So he's actually about to pray for them and then he goes off on this tangent. He doesn't actually come back to the prayer until verse 14 of chapter 3, which we're not going to cover today, that's going to be next week. So he starts off as though he's going to pray for them, but then he goes off on this tangent and here's the tangent. He says, assuming by the way that you know God gave me the special responsibility of extending his grace to you Gentiles. So just so we're sure... 
We have the Jewish people back in the first century, the Jewish people, the ones who were called by God, God was working in them and through them. They were his chosen people to reveal him to the world and they weren't real good at it. And so if you weren't a Jew, you were a Gentile and a Gentile encompassed all of every other type of person, every other nationality and tribe and ethnic group and whatever, they were the Gentiles. So Paul is saying here, he's given the special responsibility of extending his grace to you Gentiles. As I briefly wrote earlier, and what he means there is actually in chapter 1 verse 9, he mentions about this mystery. God himself revealed his mysterious plan to me. As you read what I have written, you will understand my insight into this plan regarding Christ. God did not reveal it to previous generations, but now by his spirit, he has revealed it to his holy apostles and prophets. So God's timing, we need to be aware of that in this process. And he goes on, and this is God's plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body and both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. By God's grace and mighty power, I have been given the privilege of serving him by spreading the good news. Though I am the least deserving of all God's people, he graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. I was chosen, Paul goes on, to explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus our Lord. Because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. So there's a fair bit in that. Imagine in the street you live, across from you, there is a family that is unbelievably wealthy and prosperous. And for some reason that you don't know, they want nothing to do with you. They have never talked to you. They actually avoid you. And then you hear that the head of that family has passed away and the family across from you have inherited unbelievable riches and wealth and property and businesses and just everything you could imagine. And they've always avoided you, they've never connected with you and then you hear about this massive inheritance they've just received and someone from that family comes over to you and says, would actually like if you're willing to adopt you into our family and when you're adopted into our family, everything we have is now yours. Unlikely to happen, but that, that's, uh, that's as close as I could think to what the Gentile people were experiencing with what Paul is saying here. 
God had always been with the Jews for the Jews. The Gentiles were left to their own devices. The Jews wanted nothing to do with them. And now Paul is saying, because of Jesus and what he's done, if you are a Gentile, you are welcomed in to the same family. You are welcomed into the same relationship with God. You are welcomed into the same inheritance that the Jewish people have always been promised. It is now completely free to be yours if you're willing to accept that invitation and step in. I don't think we can get our head around the magnitude of what a Gentile person would have been hearing from this. We, we don't live with that really strict division that the Jews and the Gentiles had back in the first century. So I just try to imagine, what would this be like for them? See, God's had a plan right from before creation to have a worldwide family of people with him. We pick that up in the, in the uh, Genesis narrative of creation and the special place that human beings have in that creation. We pick it up right through scripture because scripture is God's story of God dealing with his people, with his children, of wanting people to come into relationship with him. God had promised the Jewish nation that they would inherit all of the world. And now the Gentiles are discovering that they too can share in that inheritance. See, we see in verse 6, and this is God's plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body and both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Jesus Christ. So all the promises to Israel are now the same promises to all Gentiles. That includes you and I. We are promised to inherit everything that is God's, which is everything. Right back when God set this plan up with this guy called Abraham, we read in Genesis chapter 12, God makes a promise to Abraham and he says that all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so it was through the creation of the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, came. And so it was through the line of Abraham that Jesus came into the world and enabled this to become a reality. So we see right back then, there's this initiation of the Jewish people and there's this promise to all Gentiles, to all people, that God's saying, you will be my family. Everything I have is yours. And so Paul's trying to explain this as he writes this letter. And he talks about God's mighty power helping him do this and what a privilege it is to be the one who brings this news. And, and then he goes on to say, and I'm the least deserving of all of God's people. Now, we can probably hold Paul up pretty high as just this awesome apostle person who just did great things in the name of Jesus, someone who wrote 13 of the letters that are in our New Testament, like just a real champion bloke. And he's saying of himself, I'm probably the least deserving because he came into the faith. Like he was actually persecuting Christians. We read that in the early chapters of Acts until he had an encounter with the risen, risen Jesus. And so he's saying all this and then he's saying, I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan 
So what is this mysterious plan? Well, I reckon there's three things that Paul has been saying to the Ephesians in this letter that have been really important. Two of them we've already covered over the last few weeks. And I want to unpack the third one today, but just to remind you, the first thing that Paul started to tell these Gentile people is that the riches they have in Christ. And so in chapter 1, here's just a, a quick summary. This is from Ephesians chapter 1. He's saying, li listen to the language around the riches and the wealth and the inheritance. He's saying, all praise to God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. So Paul's been unpacking for these people to really understand the richness that, um, that is available to any person who is in Christ. It's beyond anything they could imagine. The second thing that he was telling really clearly is this message of unity for the Gentiles. That they would be unified to God, unified to one another, and even unified to the Jewish people who had despised them if they remain in Christ. So in chapter two, we read a whole bunch of things over the last couple of weeks. Here's a snapshot about the unity. For he, has, for he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders, but now you have been united. See the repetition? We need to keep hearing it because we need to let it sink in. We've been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people. When in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. When, when you start to piece it together like this, the repetition is really intentional, but it's really needed. We need to be reminded over and over and over and over that we are united with Christ through Christ and we are united with one another. There's even reference here about his creating a new people. And the word we use to describe that new people is the church. God is doing something new in the world through the church. And so thirdly, he, he preaches and he writes to the Ephesians to inform them, actually to inform the heavenly beings 
about God's wisdom. We read that in verse 10. God's purpose in all of this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus our Lord. I've probably read Ephesians chapter 3 many times in my life and I got stuck on this. God is using the church, you and I, to display his wisdom in its rich variety to, now the words here are the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That basically reads as to the spiritual beings, angels and demons. God is using the church to show spiritual beings about his mighty wisdom and goodness. How? How does that work? What, what does that look like? It is through this new creation of people, this oneness, this unified humanity, which is the mystery that Paul is talking about, that God shows his glory to the angels and the spiritual beings. So I started to look into this and it's amazing how many times something like this is referenced in New Testament writings. One example, I won't have it on the screen, but if you check out 1 Peter chapter 1, there's this part where Peter's talking about this salvation that's now available through Christ. And he talks about this salvation, how it's available to people who completely don't deserve it. And then he talks about, I think it's in verse 12, he says, even the angels long to look into these things, to look into these mysteries. What is going on with this? What is God up to? So no longer is the church aligned to the things that divide us. We're actually aligned to the one Holy Spirit. And that's what brings unity. Now, we can read many places in Scripture, and I would encourage you to check this out, where it talks about that in the world... The things that have influence over culture and over how societies function and over what society values and chases after and deems to be um, worthy, spiritual forces have influence over that in our world. And what I love about this in chapter 3 of Ephesians, if you have gone ahead in Ephesians and you know that Paul in chapter 6 talks about this spiritual battle, this spiritual warfare that's going on, and we're going to get to that in a few weeks' time. And he talks about it because he's referencing it here, that there is something that goes on in the spirit world, in our physical world, that brings division. And so when the church is set up to be this new kind of humanity where there is unity and, there it's, and there's unity with God, with one another, and division is completely eradicated, God's saying, in that space, I will show even the angels what my purposes truly are. Now think about this. 
We've had, and Paul's already referenced this, this idea of the division between the Jews and the Gentiles. Very clear throughout Scripture. But it's not something that just happened back in ancient times. And I tried to think, what are the divisions that exist in my world, in my thinking? And we have divisions all around us. We have divisions from nation to nation. That's probably where we are blessed to be an island nation because we don't share borders with anybody. But you just have to look at current world situations and world history to know that when people share borders and they're two different nations, there can be such division there. And then within nations, from ethnic group to ethnic group or tribe to tribe or you know, this type of you know, heritage compared to that type of heritage, there's division. We have division in our politics. We have division in socioeconomic status. We have division in the sporting teams we follow. Doesn't seem that important in the big scheme of things. We have divisions in, in the way we um, relate to people in terms of their interests or their use of social media or their, where they work or what company they support. We have divisions everywhere in our society. And the more I started to think about this, the more I started to realise I actually live into those divisions sometimes without even thinking about it. And then the worst thing in all of this is division in the church. Because the church has been set up and designed to be the one thing where division does not exist because it reflects the character and the nature of God and the one spirit which draws us together. And whenever there's division in the church, it just completely undermines the very purpose of the church. And so when we see all of the writing in the New Testament about how now remember, most of Paul's letters and some of the other epistles were actually written to churches, right? They were written to groups of Christians living life together. And so much of the writing in the New Testament is about how we do that life together. Instruction on bearing with one another, forgiving one another, lifting each other up when we're weak. Instruction on how to show joy and love and kindness and patience, all those things. And the writings just flow through the New Testament about that sort of stuff because we need it. Because if we don't have it, division exists and division is not something that can be in the church. God's painting a picture here of the church in such a way that I think we just need to lift our eyes. To go, if only we could see the church the way God sees the church. If only we could step into being the church the way God has designed us to be as the church. And where there is division, it just breaks down everything that God is saying, this is, this is what I've designed. This is my role for you. This is my purpose for you. To the point even where we're reading that when there is unity in the church, so people have come from all different backgrounds, 
tribe, race, religion, belief, whatever. People have come from all, and together they become unified. God says in that space, it even teaches the angels something about the character and the nature of God. It blew me away when, when I sat with this. N.T. Wright is a New Testament scholar, one of the world's leading scholars at the moment. He said this, he says, the church is to be a warning to the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places that their time is up and that there is a new way to live as a human in the world. That's the picture that Paul is painting to reflect what we have been called to be as the church. That we are no longer humans who rest in these divides that have just been part of our culture and our society and part of our thinking without even thinking about it. And imagine, imagine a bunch of angels, a bunch of spiritual beings looking at the church, looking at you and I and sort of saying to each other, God saved him? God saved her? God's giving that person his inheritance? God's got those people together in the same space and they actually are loving one another and they're actually getting on? Imagine the spirits who aren't following God getting together saying, we can't have this. We can't have this unity. It actually, it's going gonna, it's gonna to change the world if these people are actually unified and actually go out into the world and show people what God is truly like. We need to be at work in here. We need to get, we need to get busy and start to break this up. There's, there's a great book by C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. It sort of speaks to that. How would demons and the demonic realm have influence over people in the church and the influence would come from creating division creating hostility breaking people apart when god's going no you're not broken apart you are unified you are one and the thing we can sit on the thing we can trust the thing that we can just stake our claim on is that Jesus has said he will build his church and nothing will come against it. Jesus will build his church and nothing will come against it. So this is the church that Paul is talking about in chapter 1, 2 and 3 of Ephesians. A church that Jesus is building, a church that Jesus is central in, a church where there is unity through the indwelling Holy Spirit because it's the one spirit, a church that cannot be defeated or destroyed, a church that is so precious to Jesus. The two images we have of the church in New Testament writing is one that it's the body of Jesus. That's pretty intimate. It's his, it's his body. And the other image we see, it's the bride of Christ. Another beautiful, intimate image. Jesus loves the church. Jesus has 
a plan for the church to be this new type of community, this new type of humanity that comes in and filters out all the goodness and the joy and the peace and the reconciliation that our world needs. That's what we're called to as the church. So I don't know how, I don't know how I can, I don't know how you can, I don't know how we can treat it as such an insignificant thing when Jesus loves the church. And then he finishes this passage in verse 12. Where Paul writes, and because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. I get this picture of, of just coming into a place where, where Abba Father, your, your dad is, and you get to just come and talk to him. And you get to hang out with him and, and, he, and he puts his arm around you and, and he's there. Even the angels don't have that access. Now there are angels all around the throne of God who's, who, who declare him to be holy and mighty and, but, but there's not this picture of even the angels can have this intimate relationship with God the Father like we can. And so we can come boldly and confidently into God's presence because of who he calls us to be, which is his church. And we do this together. This open door of the throne room of God. Remember we talked a few weeks ago about the curtain temple being torn, which was symbolic of now we have access to God. There's this Father God who just has his arms open and welcomes us and wants us to be in relationship with him. Access to him, in this sense, access to God is everything that you could ever want or imagine. And when we can position ourselves where that's true for us, we will find that we start being the church that God has always seen us to be, that God has called us to be and we will start seeing that we as the church will bring influence and healing and beauty and love into the world around us so that God will be glorified. All I can say as I've looked through this is, God, would you, would you give us a picture of who you see us to be? Would you give us a greater understanding and a greater revelation of what it means to be your church. And then we get to do that together. Let me pray for us. So God, as we just sit in your word, as we sit in these words from Paul to the church in Ephesus, as he has written and unpacked some of this mystery that you have just known all along, as he has given 
clarity around what it means to be your church, I ask for a fresh revelation for each of us. That your church is your people, your family. I ask that we would be mindful of doing everything we can to be in a position where we promote unity and we seek unity. Would you show us the areas that we need to deal with individually that would be getting in the way of this unity? Would you give us courage to ask for forgiveness where it's needed? Would you give us courage to have your church central in our life? There is no greater purpose or meaning or thing we could do with our lives than to give it to what you are doing in the world through your church. God, would you be at work in us in these spaces for your glory. Amen.